and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Well, good morning and thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm always humbled as well when I see the, um, the reach that we have across the world and uh, very grateful that our journey is able to equip some other people in their journey also. So this morning, um, I've chosen the videos that I wanted to be used. Um, I'm aware Chris does an absolutely incredible job every week in coming up with the all this contemporary connective stuff that, uh, that helps us so much. But um, I wanted to speak today uh, very much from my perspective and from my own journey. So um, I asked Chris, I said, I'd like to choose these, these videos today and, and speak around them. It may be something of a foundation uh, going into next week. Um, but... Um, what is chosen is very much an expression of my journey. Uh, even the way that starts, uh, that video we've just seen, which is from Castaway, and he spent years on a desert island and then uh, comes back to America and he's trying to find his path, he's trying to find his journey now, having a different perspective from an experience that he has had. And uh, I must admit, I, I link even with the very first words of the woman who stops the truck when she says, you look lost. I'm sure that Chris could say that to me pretty much, probably four out of seven days a week at least. And so I'm kind of struggling to, to bring this stuff. But if there's one thing I've learned over recent years, it's that pretending to be someone you're not and being dishonest about what you know doesn't help you or anybody else. And so that's the journey that I'm on. And uh, there was a, a verse as I kind of have linked back into some things that I've said and wanted to draw some of those thoughts together today that I used uh, some months ago. And it's found in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. And it's the last part of a story of a, a widow who has got some issues and she's longing for somebody to act on her behalf. And, um, and the story goes that, that this judge who's fears neither God nor men, helps her, and basically the case is, you know, isn't God more attentive than that? But it finishes with this verse and says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? And I don't think for one minute that believes, you know, if the Son of Man turns up, when God turns up, will he find churches and Bibles and institutions, I think it's something much more deeper and, and organic than that about us as individuals, about people, what he finds in people. Will he find faith 
on the earth. And um, so I find this, this video from Castaway very moving. Um, and uh, forgive me if I read some of the stuff that I'm saying this morning more than normal. It's mainly because, you know, when you're trying to gather thoughts, sometimes writing them down gives you a good reference point. But I'll try not to make it look as I'm just reading from a script. Okay. But I've spoken to you before about the crisis experienced in my own life, which I have to honestly say is ongoing and so far unresolved. This crisis, which has now been going on for many years, is not over my faith. Lest you should misunderstand, misrepresent, miscalculate, my crisis, which comes out in what I say, is not over my faith. It's over my beliefs. And, and I now see, and, and have seen for some time, that much of what comes from belief actually pulls God down to our level. I think it's a misrepresentation of truth because we take truth, filter it through our human understanding and then we interpret God through that dimension and what happens is we pull the whole thing down to our level. I've witnessed it again during the whole coronavirus crisis and particularly in the current situation of vaxxed or unvaxxed. I see everything I've experienced in church life about saved or unsaved, baptized or not baptized, filled with the Spirit or not filled with the Spirit. Spirit. And it brings out a certain kind of judgmental nastiness and tribalism because of that perspective. So I think, I think when I look at what I believe has been the gospel, we pull God down to our level from salvation to judgment. See, I think what we think God would do in judging people is what we would do in judging people, not what God actually does in judging people. I think our understanding of salvation is more to do with our scapegoating and our need for some outside force to intervene that we can put the load and the blame on. Now, how you interpret that is up to you. I believe it affects prayer. You know, people are saying now, all of a sudden, pray for Ukraine, pray for Ukraine. My problem is this, does that mean that unless we pray for Ukraine, God is not going to help anybody in Ukraine, and that he wasn't willing to help anybody before we in the West prayed for Ukraine, because he didn't care enough about Ukrainians to be involved. Can you see how the picture is much bigger than the virtue signaling of, oh, we should all pray for Ukraine right now? My question would be, what the heck is going on in the heart of God if it needs the rest of the world now to pray for Ukraine in order for things to go okay with them. Can you see why I struggle? And I see that in many other areas. To praise and, and worship. You know, I've told you before, I think there is a place for praise and worship. And I understand all the dialogue about praise and worship. But for, for crying out loud, heck, when my kids come to my house, the last thing I want them to do is spend 45 minutes in praise and worship of dad in order that they may enter the inner sanctuary and receive from my table. So can you see how we can impose upon God a very human perspective from our own belief that pulls him down to our level? Now understand, I'm not diminishing or saying there isn't a place for salvation or judgment or prayer or praise and worship. I'm just asking you to ask some serious questions 
about whether belief has interfered with those and taken from them what they should really be. Of course, that spreads into whole ideas of heaven and ideas of hell, and it spreads to service and it spreads to forgiveness, how our beliefs pull God down to our level. I think we press towards a rational assent to the truth in the form of certain mental beliefs. Rather than pursuing a calm and hopeful trust in God, who is always trying to find his way through the imposition of our narrative onto his story to make his presence felt in our story. We somehow came to presume that by a set of confirmed beliefs, we can corral the divine essence into the finite realms of our human understanding and thereby exert control over a kingdom that he says was his and his alone into which we have been invited. And gradually the God who is inerrant in all things, we separated from most things to be present in only our truth, our tribe and our story. That word inerrant means existing in something as a permanent, essential, and characteristic attribute. The God who is inerrant in all things. The experiences that I've been through have awakened me to discrepancies and anomalies which I either did not believe existed, or I think this part is more likely, or was unwilling to address. None of these have diminished the reality of God, but they have taken the shine off institutionalized religions and Christianity's claims. I fear that I may have bound God and Jesus and sacred text within the chains of a structured belief that morphed the clean, simple beauty of transformative grace and unconditional love into the messy legal world of transactional arrangement. If you do this, I'll do that. If you say that, I'll respond in this way. If you don't, I won't. And so we get back to what I've said to you, unfortunately, I believe, echoes through the core of so much of even Christian teaching, which is the pagan concept, the gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, you'll be rewarded for doing good, you'll be punished for doing bad. That is not the God, I believe, revealed in and through Jesus. And so we've taken it from organic to mechanic. Now it's become so mechanical in forms and ceremonies and things that must be done, said, accepted, spoken in certain ways, rather than that organic relational understanding of a journey of pilgrimage to find the truth of the living God. We moved it from dynamic to formula. And we love a formula. Just give me the seven steps. Just give me the 42 reasons why it might not happen. That's a formula. I can't do that when you find the true reality of a God who lives and who is inerrant in all things. All of these are the result of having found myself at the intersection of faith and belief. That's why I love that video. The problem in finding oneself at an intersection is that a path or way must be chosen. And so it is at the intersection of faith and belief. 
that inevitably may mean rejecting one in favor of the other. There are places where these two paths run side by side and sometimes blend into one, belief and faith and faith and belief. I'm not saying belief is invalid and you can give me scriptures about belief and I can give you scriptures about believing, but belief and faith are not the same thing and these two paths may intertwine but they can also become a problem because there are places where these two paths run side by side and sometimes blend into one, but invariably they separate again and a choice must be made. The deciding factor is the hunger for truth over the defense of beliefs. Now I have to be honest with you and admit that for a great part of my life I was defending beliefs rather than being hungry for truth. Because I just believed that beliefs that I were given must be the truth because I was given them by people I respected. It was their perspective. I owed no criticism. I'm grateful for what was taught to me. I'm grateful for what was said. I don't think anybody was insincere. I don't think anybody was deliberately trying to mislead, but each of us individually must have our own journey and that journey must be from a hunger for truth. And not a defense of beliefs. Now let me say as a pastor, that's not good for business. It's really not good for business. We like sincere and secure beliefs that we can defend to our dying breath and feel somehow a sense of, a sense of accomplishment and achievement by defending those beliefs. The hunger for truth is a much more uncertain path. And one that I can't say I always like, but it's one I've committed to, hence the reason why we are where we are today and why I talk to you about the intersection of faith and belief and the choices we must make. It's like the clash between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. Now, those of you not familiar with this story, it's a fabulous story of the patriarch Abraham Way back in Genesis chapter 13, it's recorded. And some people, theologically minded, might say, Ant, you are interpreting that in a very strange way. And I may be interpreting it in a strange way, but it means something to me. You see, Genesis 13 talks about when Abraham had left his home in her of the Chaldees because God had said to him, leave your country, your people, your father's house. Why? He was at an intersection of faith and belief. Was he going to believe what he had always received from country and people and father's house? Or was he prepared to go on a journey of faith to discover the God who he was looking for? And I've said to you before, those three things represent three ways of seeing things. They represent country people, father's house, three levels of influence. The influence of country, the wide influence, the influence of tribe, a nearer influence, and the influence of father's house, which is the great challenge of the things that you have grown up in with those who are closest to you that you may have to walk away from. And in the journey, he, he gets to a place where he's expanding and growing. And he's taken his nephew, Lot. And there's a verse that says, and the, Now the herdsmen of Lot quarreled with the herdsmen of Abram because they said, The land is too small to contain all of us. Now here's my interpretation for today. 
I believe by spirit. Abraham had taken with him something that he was not instructed to take with him, but he assumed was right to take with him when he was leaving, which was his nephew Lot. So what he had brought with him from that life was now meaning that there was not space for these two things to stay together, the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham. So they had to make a choice to part. Now you can read the story of what happens in there. I'm not going to read it all for you today. Go and read it for yourself. But in the end, it came down to a matter of choosing. And Abraham made a gracious choice, but it still meant he had to make a gracious choice between belief and faith, I would say, in this context that I'm talking about today as it applies to us, because the two things often cannot occupy the same space. And I think the beliefs that we have carried through with us are in conflict with where we are developing. Now I'll say one more thing in this section. I could not have reached this place without the presence of doubt. And that's what I want to talk to you about in the next section. I think allowing doubt to arise and develop has been one of the hardest things to accept in my life. I grew up as a very trusting child. Um, my parents were loving and kind and loved God with all their hearts and were sincere to the very core. And so as a child, obviously growing up in that, I had no emotional or security reasons to question anything that I was told. To the extent I remember several instances, for example, one time down at uh, King Square, I remember an open-air meeting being down there. I was just a kid, probably, probably I don't know, maybe eight or nine or ten, uh, asking my father the question that arises in most of us at some time, so where did God come from? And my father's answer was, God was and God is. And that was enough for me as a child. So I lived in the security of that God was and God is. Now, now I can't say that he was wrong. But it was a simple solution to a very complex question that it's taken me much of my life to begin to wrestle with some of the bigger intricacies about what we have understood about the divine and who we are and the divine becoming flesh. And I was very accepting in those ways, but it has become important in this stage of my life, probably for the last 18 years, to somehow make space for doubts to arrive, to arise and develop. Simply because I found that things that I never expected to happen to me did happen and things that I was not believing could take place did take place and people who I never believed would let me down or betray me did let me down and betray me and friendships that I thought would never end did end and prayers that were prayed didn't come to pass and you begin to wrestle, you either go into the cocoon of the ostrich who puts his head in the sand or you immediately then react by dismissing everything they cannot be a God, there cannot be spirituality, it's all nonsense, or you allow yourself to go into a phase and period where you embrace the development 
and the arising of doubt within you to see where it will take you. There's a verse in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark where there's a story about, we would now describe it probably as epilepsy. Um, it's described in there as a de demon in the child. And the disciples come to Jesus, they can't deal with what's happening with this child. And uh, Jesus has a little conversation with the child's father. And I just wanted to pull one verse out that I can read the whole story in Mark chapter 9, uh, if you wish to read it. But there's one little verse in there I want to pull out that I find very interesting is, Jesus asked the father if he believed, and the father in tears said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I can honestly say that's the place that I live most of my spiritual life right now. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. What I think that did is it allowed space in the context of a conversation with the incarnate God in Jesus for us to be able to say without condemnation, help my unbelief. And to maybe realize that some of that unbelief that roots into doubt might actually be very healthy in the process of our development to push us into faith rather than lock us in the prison of just belief. See, until I realized that doubt is not my enemy, I couldn't let doubt be a catalyst for change. So I spent so much of my time fighting doubt. How many have done that? Trying to fight your doubt. Trying to come against your doubt. Trying to cast it out. Trying to bind the demon to get rid of it. But you see, what I learned is that doubt is not an enemy. Doubt is a catalyst. And if there are elements of a thing that can be doubted, I would say it should be doubted in order that by examination of that doubt, you might actually come to where the truth shines through in spite of the doubt. A catalyst in chemistry is any substance that increases the rate of a reaction without itself being consumed. It can also be a person or a thing that precipitates an event I was quite taken when I read that about, in chemistry, it's a substance that increases the rate of reaction without itself being consumed. And it led me to this thought, maybe doubt is not supposed to be consumed. Maybe it's supposed to be there because it's one of our greatest assistances of a catalyst that without being consumed increases the rate of reaction that if you embrace it in the right way will push you always towards the truth which might not necessarily coincide with what you currently believe. If only we could see doubt as an event that precipitates change. The Americans love the term precipitation. You hear it all the time in their weather reports. We are expecting precipitation. In England, we're just a little bit clearer and less stuck up. We call it rain. <laughs> Which sounds to me a very sensible way of talking about what comes out of the sky is rain. It comes in showers, it comes in floods, but it's Rain, they call it precipitation. But on the other hand, that what they have grasped in that word that sometimes we miss when we talk about a thing precipitating an event, it means it's going to rain on your parade. 
And maybe doubt makes it rain in a good way. Just maybe. And I bet you never thought you'd be in a church where somebody was promoting the value and the benefits of doubt. See, we struggle because with doubt comes uncertainty. And with uncertainty comes insecurity. And with insecurity comes fear. And with fear comes fight or flight. And that's where most of us finish up. We either run from the truth that we are seeing or we fight against the truth that we are seeing. Do you understand what I'm saying? But maybe that's where we're supposed to look for a love beyond our current perception that introduces hope beyond our current expectation, that initiates faith beyond our current belief. My question is, we've read it, people know it, if you've been around in church for a long time, you'll have hung your hat on it many times, but whatever happened to what the psalmist wrote in Psalms 46 and verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Seems to me the one thing I did not learn in my Pentecostal upbringing was anything about being still and knowing. It was all about active and grabbing. Everything was pushed for. In fact, in fact, I would grow up with terms like if the Spirit doesn't move us, we're going to move the Spirit. You know, I know my mother-in-law in particular, silence was, was demonic. So we never lived in a church service where silence was ever allowed to be there. Somebody would pray, shout out, sing, speak in tongues, prophesy, interpret or something. But somehow we lost the secret of being still and knowing that he is God. Somehow working up within us to a place where our beliefs felt secure and so we were okay. You see, sometimes in the stillness, you find your beliefs are not quite what you thought they were. And so we fear the stillness. And yet it's in the stillness that you find the secret of knowing who God really is. You see, the inherent danger of belief is that it can become so rigidly fixed and defended that even truth can't penetrate it. Can I say that again? That's worth saying again, isn't it? The inherent danger of belief is that it can become so rigidly fixed and defended that even truth can't penetrate it. And so I echo some things from that promo of Pete Enns for his book, The Sin of Uncertainty. The problem is trusting our beliefs rather than trusting God. See, we shift to trusting our beliefs rather than trusting God and keeping the Creator captive to what we are able to comprehend. Seeing the Bible as an instruction manual rather than a dialogue of pilgrimage. And so I believe in the Bible, I love the Bible, but sometimes we've made it God's instructional manual rather than realizing what it is, is a dialogue of pilgrimage for us to investigate, to assist us in our own pilgrimage here and now. And I also like what he said, church is often the most risky place to be spiritually honest. I know that as a pastor. Because watching certainty slide into uncertainty is frightening. 
But I love what he says at the end. I've come to see this process as sacred and ongoing. And that's what I want to get through to you today. This process is sacred and it should be ongoing. So I would now propose that it is unanswered questions, not unquestioned answers that build faith. And therein lies the value of doubt and the birthplace of trust and hope. And so I want to read you something that somebody, not myself, wrote, but I think it's helpful to finish this little section of my talk. To commit to faith is not the same as committing to a set of beliefs. Knowing does not create faith. Knowing creates belief. Faith is an attitude of acceptance of not knowing. Unknowing creates faith. And yet, that faith then creates a kind of knowing. It's the paradox of the spiritual journey. In the void of not knowing, we may ask, is it God at all who asks this of me? Or circumstance? The answer of faith is this. It doesn't matter. You don't know, know now, and you may never know. To not know in the context of faith is to remain humble and teachable, which is what belief tends to rob us of. So the next time you find yourself in a spiritual crisis, my advice, attach no value to it from the position of positive or negative. Release your beliefs for the time being and don't labor at bringing them into congruity with the crisis. Have faith that whatever is happening to you now will be neither lost nor forgotten, but witnessed and acknowledged in the fullness of its truth. With time and maturity, all that bears light will be made clear. And so I want to conclude this morning by trying to find words to express to you where I think I'm at, what I think I believe, what I think is the way forward. The uh, Danish theologian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said these words, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It's really just a, a philosopher's way of talking about the merits of hindsight. And how when we look back, how many times I said, when I look back on the situation, when I look back at it, but you see the struggle we have is that life must be lived forwards. And I think herein lies the problem that we all face. So my question, how do we live purposefully in a forward-looking way? I think that's where faith becomes so desperately important why comfort with the unknown becomes necessary why trust in God not belief becomes the important process there's a verse in Proverbs chapter 13 it's verse 12 that those of you who are familiar with Bible will will remember it in this way hope deferred makes the heart sick but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. How many of you are familiar with that verse? But I like the way Peterson 
translated it in the message version of the Bible, which I think many more of you will connect with it this morning when I read this to you. Here's how Peterson translated it. Unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick. Does that make more sense? Unrelenting disappointment leaves your heart sick. And it's not nice to be heart sick. How many of you know the feeling of heart sick? I don't just mean, huh. I mean, when something gets you deep down here and you think, I just can't go on, I can't go any further, I don't know what to, who do I trust, what do I trust, what do I believe, and you're back to all the struggles we've talked about that are the journey of faith but get interrupted by this thing called belief. Unrelenting disappointment leaves the heart sick. And that unfulfilled expectations I would put into that arena there. But I love what he says, but a sudden good break can turn life around. There is such a thing as sudden good breaks. I may get onto that next week of talking to you about what might be interpreted in my life as sudden good breaks, but there have been an awful lot of them, which I would say now, my faith toward God is not just based in what I can quote from what is supposedly sacred text, but from the experiential outworking of the truth that I now know to be a loving God who is inerrant in all things, who fills everything in every way and whose arms wrap us around about. And maybe it's more about our availability and accessibility to what already exists than it is actually trying to work ourselves to something that we think we can attain or achieve by something that we do or say. Maybe we only arrive at the intersection of faith and belief when we experience the trauma of disappointment or some other life-threatening event. And therefore, let the cat out of the bag with you when I make that statement, because you can now rightly assume if Anth arrived at the intersection of faith and belief, he must have experienced the trauma of disappointment or some other life-threatening event. And I would say, top of the class, you're absolutely right, and I'm more than happy to be honest about that. And so I'll bring you back to the verse I rooted this in from Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, when he turns up, when the reckoning comes, will he find faith in the earth? Maybe unless there are people who engage in the physics of the quest which we just heard, the answer is no. And yeah, I could take every element of that physics of the quest and give you Bible verses to say it, but I think it's put beautifully, and I'm no longer stupid enough to think that unless I can put a chapter and a verse on it, it has no validity and no weight and no impact and nothing to impart upon my life. I think if a thing is said well, it's said well. And if truth is within it, truth is within it. And I'm not going to let preconceived beliefs interfere with truth coming through. See, physics is the forces at work responsible for a certain outcome. That's why I like that, the physics of the quest. And of course, quest is something we've said we're committed to. That's why we're Q Church. But see, we have a problem. We want to trust our beliefs. We don't want to trust God. I want you to think about that because my immediate thought many years ago would be, no, how dare you? That's terrible. But now, looking back, remember what Kierkegaard said? 
Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back, I realized that more often than not, I was trusting our beliefs, not actually trusting God. Because God is dangerous. And I found that out more and more. God is dangerous. Not in an awful way, not in a threatening way, but in the way you just can't bottle him. You just can't bag him. You just can't confine him. You just have to release him to be who he is. And when I use the term him, it's because it's more convenient, not because God is six foot four and male with blonde hair and blue eyes, like we said, the Bjorn again, you know, <laughs> Swedish Jesus. God is dangerous. Our beliefs we can define. God we can't. And therein is the problem. We spent too much time thinking we were trying to define God, but what we were defining was a set of beliefs. And very often God was absent from our beliefs because what we were defining was coming from our human perspective, developed through our traumas in those beliefs, bringing God down to our level. I'm all for releasing him and the danger of maybe finding out who he really is. Our beliefs we can define, God we can't, so we keep the creator captive to what we can comprehend. And I won't do it anymore. The problem with our spiritual journey is that somewhere along the path to find spiritual wholeness, we became drug-level dependent on written words and prescribed formulas as the measure of all things rather than what John in his gospel describes as living word, word made flesh, word alive. And so let me read to you again what was so beautifully quoted from the movie Love, Eat, Pray. That's the right way around, isn't it? Eat, pray, love. Yeah. Those three things are in there somewhere. Because I think it puts it so beautifully. And I would say this of me. I have come to believe that there exists in the universe something I call the physics of the quest. A force of nature governed by laws as real as the laws of gravity or momentum and the rule of quest physics maybe goes like this. If you're brave enough to leave behind everything familiar and comforting, which can be anything from your house to your bitter old resentments, or the beliefs that you were raised with in church, and set out on a truth-seeking journey, either externally or internally, preferably both, and if you're truly willing, brave, willing, to regard everything that happens to you on that journey as a clue, and if you accept everyone you meet along the way as a teacher, that's scary, isn't it? And if you're prepared most of all to face and forgive some very difficult realities about yourself, then truth will not be withheld from you. I have come to believe this. Brave, 
willing, accept face. Belief is a product of the mind, but faith is not. Faith is a product of the spirit. The mind interferes in the process of faith more than it contributes to it. To have faith in the worst of times will no doubt require us to silence or at least quiet the mind. Faith is what happens when our beliefs run aground. So if you're not prepared to let your beliefs run aground, the probability is you will never go on the path of faith. The human spirit can be buoyed by our beliefs, but it can also be brought down by them when they prove inadequate, as they most certainly will at some point in the journey, or most certainly have in the journey already walked. The good news is, over, through, and in it all, these three remain. And my mantra has become centered on what I call the Holy Trinity of spiritual reality, which Paul so beautifully wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Holy Trinity of spiritually reality. These three remain, Paul declares, when everything that's just stuff is recognized to be just stuff, when belief has let you down, when it's run aground, when it's proved inadequate, these three remain. A love that shines through all and conquers all. A because of love, which doesn't come out of belief. It comes out of faith. See, I was taught God loves you in spite of who you are. That's a very strange kind of love. Particularly if you're looking for relationship. Imagine if when I proposed to Chris or she proposed to me, I can't remember which way around it was, probably the latter. She had said, will you marry me? And I said, why? And she said, because I love you. And I said, in what way do you love me? And she said, I love you in spite of who you are. How many would say yes? You see, we've been sold a lie because of the lie of separation that God loves you in spite of who you are. But the truth is this love declares that God loves you because of who you are. Because in you he sees himself. And in you he sees the very kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. He sees within you something that draws him, attracts him. And it's not he loves you in spite of who you are. He loves you because of who you are. That's the good news of this Holy Trinity love. It's a love that shines through all and conquers all. A because of love. 
Now, you'll diminish that because of belief and think, how can God possibly love me because of who I am? He must love me in spite of who I am. That's not God talking. That's your belief being superimposed over his truth. But you see, faith brings truth to you that causes you to accept and say, wow, rather than no. And it brings us a hope that transforms the expectation of a different word, a new word, and a faith that convinces the inner being that all will be well. I may not be able to answer the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? But maybe I can answer the question, will he find faith in me? Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest.